What is love? Or more specifically, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Uh, if we were to take our cue from the world of, of romantic movies and whatnot, love would be defined as, as a feeling, a, a feeling of strong attachment and, and uh, affection, strong attraction. It's, it's about your affection for someone. And when used in that way, it's often in, indistinguishable from lust. Many Christians, on the other hand, are fond of saying that love is a verb, right? Arguing that it's more about what you do for someone than how you feel toward them. Our modern uh, therapeutic culture would insist that loving your neighbor means behaving in a way that makes them feel a certain way about themselves. So it's not so much what you feel toward them, but what you make them feel about themselves. It's about striving to make everyone feel accepted and approved of and, and affirmed in their life choices and their forms of personal self-expression. That's what love is, we're told. But if not that, then, then what is love? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, our passage today explores this, beginning with an example of what it does not look like to love your neighbor. I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 2, verse 1. You can find it on page 229 in the second half of the Pew Bible. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord to you. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, well, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the, under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, cause us to be doers and not merely hearers of your word, that we may be confidently able to rejoice in your mercy triumphing over the judgment we deserve. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, the letter of James contains 59 commands in the span of 108 verses. 
59 commands in 108 verses. So you can do a little math there. You'll see that that's more than one command every two verses. And for many, that's why it's their favorite book. It's immensely practical and pretty straightforward. Having a more con condensed density of commands per verses than any other book of the New Testament. Well, at the same time, though, as the, as the ethical commands pile up and we increasingly begin to recognize how far short we fall, we can find the letter very challenging. And people have been known to make the claim that there's no gospel in this letter. It's all law and no grace. But that's a complete mischaracterization and misreading of the letter. Yes, James writes differently than the other authors of the New Testament, but he's still pointing us to the gospel of grace. It's just more assumed than explained, uh, but it is there. James began the letter with a focus on faith, specifically on how the trials that we face in life test and thus refine our faith. As we look beyond this life onto the eternal life, which God has promised to those who love Him. Chapter 1, verse 12. He then explained how the gospel, which he referred to as the word of truth that is able to save your souls, how the gospel is the means by which God gives us new birth and transforms us, empowering us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. At the end of chapter 1, he then turned his attention to three marks of what he called pure and undefiled religion. It's one, control of our tongues. Two, concern for the poor and needy. And then three, countering the corrupting influence of the world. Control of our tongues, concern for the poor and needy, and countering the corrupting influence of the world. Now, here in chapter two, uh, James continues that discussion. He, he spends a, a lengthy section here in chapter two on other ways to show concern for the poor and needy. And at the end of chapter 1, he talked about caring for widows and orphans. Now he's going to broaden that to other ways to show concern for the poor and needy. Then after that, in chapter 3, he'll have a lengthy section on controlling the tongue. And then in chapter 4, a lengthy section on the corrupting influence of the world in general. And throughout all of this, James is not ignoring our need for grace. James is exposing our need for grace. Everything in the letter builds to the climax in chapter 4, verse 6, where James declares that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And that mercy in grace is received through faith, he says, through faith alone. But, James's point is that once that mercy and grace is received within us, it begins to change us. His point is that saving faith is a living faith that increasingly makes us more like God. You hear this in the opening verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Partiality is at odds with gospel faith. Partiality is, is giving preferential treatment to one group or, or person at the expense of another group or person based purely on outward appearances or in this specific example given, based on socioeconomic status. The scenario appears to be a Christian worship gathering where a finely dressed visitor is given a seat of honor while a shabbily dressed visitor is made to sit at the greeter's feet. He's saying that such discrimination, 
He's describing it as judging with evil thoughts. Well, how so? How is that evil? He's going to give three reasons why showing partiality is evil. The first is found in verse 5. He says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which God has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Now, that's obviously not saying that all poor people respond to the gospel in faith and come to love God. It's not saying that all poor people are saved, nor is it saying that only poor people ever respond to the gospel in faith and come to love God. It's not all people, all poor people, and it's not just poor people. In the Old Testament, uh, Job, Abraham, and David were all wealthy men of God. In the New Testament, Zacchaeus, Levi, Joseph of Arimathea, and Lydia were all wealthy followers of Christ. With God, all things are possible, said Jesus, even the salvation of the rich. But it is the case that of those who respond to the gospel in faith, far more are poor than they are rich. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He doesn't say not any of you were rich, just not many of you were rich. And thus partiality is evil because partiality does not value what God values. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, as He is described, He left the riches of glory in order to become a human being, to live, to die, and to rise again in the place of undeserving sinners like us so that all who place their faith in Him for the forgiveness of their sins become heirs of His eternal kingdom. See, the gospel shows us what God values. God values people, all those made in His image, in desperate need of redemption. And when it comes to what He most values within people, it's the humility of faith. Never mind the pride of riches, let us honor the humility of faith as God does. We must not do anything that detracts from the honor that God has shown to His redeemed people. That shabbily dressed visitor who is a believer in Christ is a co-heir of God's eternal kingdom, purchased by the blood of the King Himself. So we must treat them accordingly. Partiality does not value what God values. What then does partiality value? Well, we're going to consider that as we look at the next two verses. Continuing verse 6, James asks, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? What's going on here? Why were the rich in society oppressing these Christians and dragging them into court? Well, remember that, that most of the Christians to whom James is writing are refugees. They're refugees from Jerusalem who have fled from the intense persecution there and have ended up working in the fields of wealthy landowners in the north. And just like today, wealthy people often use their wealth to get more wealth at the expense of the poor. They force people to forfeit their property for late payments. They insist on ruinous interest rates for any loans and so forth. They value worldly riches above all else. But why does James bring this, bring this up here? He, he's calling them not to show partiality. What is this, the rich being the ones who oppress you and drag you into court, what's that have to do with not showing partiality toward them? 
Well, because that's exactly what these Christians are doing in showing partiality to the rich, is valuing the worldly riches above all else. I mean, think about it. Why would you be compelled to show favoritism at the, to the rich at the expense of the poor in gatherings of worship? That's really only one of two reasons. Either it's because of what you think you can get out of the rich person, what they might be able to contribute to the work of the kingdom in contrast to what little the poor might be able to contribute to your church. Or you show favoritism simply because you've adopted the way that the world looks at measuring a person's worth, valuing the rich as inherently more worthy of your respect and attention and honor, as being inherently better than the poor. Either way, these Christians were valuing people differently than the way that God values people. And the very thing that led to their own oppression in that society by the rich in the society was now leading these Christians to mistreat the poor and needy, valuing riches above all else. James continues this thought with another question, verse 7. Are they, the rich in society, not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? What name is that? It's the name above every name. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name that every Christian takes upon themselves in their baptism. So you're baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, why were the rich in society blaspheming the name of Christ at that time? Well, it's the same with rich unbelievers in every society. Because wealth is their God. Because their trust is in wealth often precludes their trust in Christ. Because those who, who feel proud and secure in their riches see no need for a Savior from their sin. And so they speak falsely about the one true God that they refuse to serve. They mock those who insist upon complete devotion to the one true God alone. And thus, the rich blaspheme the name by which these Christians are called. But now... With their show of partiality, these Christians were likewise speaking falsely about the worth of the poor and needy, about those that Christ purchased with His blood. And so by adopting the value system of the world, by adopting the values of the world that, that lead to oppression and blasphemy, these Christians were now oppressing and blaspheming others. So in this sense, partiality oppresses and blasphemes others. We might think that we're not going to be tempted uh, to, to give in to this uh, temptation that they were with the rich and the poor coming in and the rich being mis you know, treated preferentially at the expense of the poor. But this has been written for our instruction, so we need to carefully consider how it applies to us. Favoring the seemingly influential in society uh, during a worship service, it can take many forms. The example given here is just, it's just one form showing partiality to those who are perceived as influential. As a preaching pastor, partiality can be expressed in what I do and what I don't preach about. Specifically in regard to the sins that I do address and those that I don't. Skipping over the topics that are more likely to prick the hearts of the wealthier members the church, or the, the longer-standing members of the church, or the more senior members, the more faithful and consistent members. When you think about that context, in the churches to which James is writing, where the rich are given preferential treatment to the neglect of the poor, 
Once everyone was seated in their respective seats of honor and, and dishonor, do you think the preacher, having observed that, then turns to the honored guests and reprimands their abuse of the poor? Or would the preacher skip over anything that might give offense to these influential, honored guests? Well, that too is a form of partiality. It's not just where they sit. It's what they're confronted with in the message. And then more generally, uh, there's the temptation to stick with the issues that are only apparent in the lives of unbelievers out there, not the issues that are apparent in our life together as a family of faith in here. Just speak about what condemns those out there, not that which challenges us in here. That's a form of partiality. Catering uh, to the current Financial givers of the church is just one form of partiality. It can go the other way as well, catering to the potential future givers of the church. Skipping over the topics that I suspect visitors are more likely to find offensive given the moral rot of our culture. Perhaps especially younger visitors who have been brought up in a very different world and culture than many of the rest of us. Skipping over those things that offend out of fear of running them off. You can see why so many pastors, so many churches have stopped talking altogether about so many of the things that God talks about in His Word. Skipping over what would offend longtime Christians and skipping over what would offend younger believers and those who are not yet believers. That's why so many churches just say the things that the world already says and likes to hear. That's rendering themselves utterly irrelevant as they abandon the only word of truth that can save souls, to use the language of chapter 1, verse 21. Partiality, it can take many forms. It's not just who gets the best seat in the house. It's, it's not just who is avoided in the preaching. It can be seen in the decisions that we make as a church and the decisions that we don't make as a church. Always aiming to suit our own preferences while ignoring the things that could be changed to better serve those around us who don't have a church home. From programs to, to policies to facilities, what have you. Catering to our preferences without regard for the unique needs and desires of those we're trying to reach. That too is self-serving partiality. So partiality does not value what God values. Partiality oppresses and blasphemes. And finally, the third reason that James gives for why showing partiality is evil, partiality violates the royal law of love. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. As you know from the reading earlier that Mike gave, James is quoting here from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The one verse from the five books of Moses that is most often quoted in the New Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting, having read Leviticus 19, 9 through 18 before, it's interesting that James doesn't quote verse 15 of that passage which is explicitly about not showing partiality. No, in his quotation, he jumps straight to the heart of the matter. Lack of love. In fact, the call to love is the beating heart of all of God's law. Jesus summarized the entire law of God with two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. 
Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul went even further, saying the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.13, then again Romans 13.9. Are Paul and James ignoring the command to love God? I mean, Jesus said love God and love neighbor. They're focused on love neighbor. Are they ignoring the command to love God? Well, of course not. Uh, up to this point in the letter, James has already twice described Christians as those who love God. That's what it means to be a Christian, those who love God. What Paul in Galatians and Romans and James here in this letter and the other apostles, what they're saying is that our vertical love for God is primarily expressed through our horizontal love for our neighbors. The vertical is expressed and flows out in the horizontal. The Apostle John put it this way. You're, you're going to be familiar with this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He said, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, well, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Our love for God necessarily leads to loving what he loves, the people he has created. So what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Getting back to our first question. Is it about making them feel accepted and approved of and, and affirmed in their sinful life choices and rebellious forms of personal self-expression? No. The context of Leviticus 19, it gives us a number of examples of what neighbor love looks like in many of the same ways as what James has said. He says, in Leviticus 19, it involves controlling your tongue, not lying, not cursing, not slandering. It says it involves concern for the poor and needy, leaving behind the gleanings of the harvest. It says it involves not showing partiality to either the rich or the poor. Clearly, James has this passage in mind as he works through James chapter 1 and 2. And something else that's instructive uh, from that original context of Leviticus 19, where the command to love your neighbor was first given, uh, something instructive from that is a particular emphasis on two things. One, neighbor love in that passage is set in direct opposition to taking vengeance and bearing a grudge. That helps us to see that, that neighbor love is about seeking someone's good rather than seeking their harm. Love is about seeking the good of others. Not about making them feel a certain way, but about seeking their good. The second emphasis from that context where the neighbor love command is first given in Leviticus 19 is that love is more than a verb. It's not simply about doing good to others. It involves the heart. For it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall love your neighbor as yourself as yourself, from the heart. Meaning not merely in the way that you would like to be treated, but also with a heart posture that you have toward yourself, earnestly desiring your good. To love your neighbor as yourself is to both desire and to seek their good. Desire and seek their good. And it's not left up to us to divine, define what that looks like. It's not left up to us to define what is good for us or for others. I don't get to decide that that's what's good for me is that you affirm me in my life choices, that you affirm me in my forms of personal self-expression, and thus that's what it means for you to love me. I don't get to define that. No, our Creator and our Lawgiver gets to decide what is good for us. Otherwise, 
What are we doing? We're just putting ourselves back in the Garden of Eden, deliberately eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, declaring for ourselves the right to decide what is good and evil for us, rather than trusting in the good designs of our Creator. He decides what is good and evil for our lives. But getting back to the sin of partiality, in verse 9, James's point is that, that partiality is no small matter. It's a violation of the royal law, meaning the king's law, and thus it makes you a transgressor. To transgress the king's law is to make yourself an enemy of the king. James continues, verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. He's saying that the law is an indivisible unity. He's telling us why. It's because every command comes from the same source. They are all spoken by the one true king. And they're not arbitrary. They're not random. They've not been forced upon God by some other outside cosmic force. No, they all speak to some aspect of His character. They reveal Him and His heart to us. And thus, to spurn and to, to disobey any of His commands is to spurn some aspect of who He is, of His character. That's to make yourself His enemy. God's moral law is not like one of those college exams uh, where you're given the choice of, of five out of ten essay questions that you want to take a stab at. No, they're all required. All the questions have the same point value. You skip one, you might as well skip them all. And it takes me back to, to earlier in the semester of every class I ever took, where it seemed that invariably, without fail, at some point in the semester, someone would raise their hand to interrupt the professor and ask, is this going to be on the exam? Well, we were, we were all thinking it, but few had the gall to ask it because it's so insulting to the professor. You're there to learn. The professor's there to teach. He's not there to waste your time and his time by covering material that he doesn't think you need. It all matters. When it comes to God's revelation of himself, it all matters. It's all on the exam including the sin of partiality. It's no small thing. So he says, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So speak. Notice the influence that our words have on others. And so act. The influence of our deeds on others. Speak and act as those who will have to give an account. Judged under the law of liberty. What is this law of liberty? That's the second time he used that phrase. He saw, we saw in the passage last week as well, the law of liberty. We don't usually put those things together, law and liberty. Well, the law of liberty most fundamentally is the gospel. The gospel is a law. It commands repentance and faith. And the apostles describe obedience to the gospel as that which frees us from the penalty that our sins demand. But as James has been demonstrating in this letter so far, saving faith is a living faith. When, when the gospel that saves our souls is implanted within us, it not only frees us from the penalty of our sin, but it grows and it bears the fruit of obedience to God's moral law, 
freeing us from the power of sin. James here is focusing on one key fruit of living faith, love. He explains it this way in the final verse, verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. It's the opposite of the beatitude that Jesus gave in Matthew 5, verse 7, where Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James is reading the other side of the coin. Cursed are the merciless, for they shall not receive mercy. Only those who have shown mercy to others will be shown mercy by God in the final judgment. Now, what it means for God to show us mercy in the final judgment, well, that's easy to understand, but what does it mean for us to show mercy to others here and now? What is mercy? Uh, sometimes we like to distinguish between God's mercy and God's grace. Maybe you're familiar with that distinction. Uh, we describe grace as God giving us what we don't deserve, and mercy as Him not giving us what we do deserve. So God's grace is His granting to us undeserved blessings, and His mercy is withholding deserved judgment. There are certainly times when, when those narrower definitions of mercy and grace are found in the Scriptures, but it's often the case that the two terms are, are broader than that and can even be used interchangeably. By describing impartial treatment of the poor and needy as showing mercy, well, James is helping us to see the, the broader meaning of mercy. What is it? To show mercy, simply to show concern for the needs of others. It's the same word that appears in the climax of Jesus' teaching and telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're probably familiar with that. It's in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus asked a lawyer, after telling the story, Jesus asked him which character in the story proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. The lawyer replied, the one who showed him mercy. Mercy is concern for the needs of others. And judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, the, the truth that, that mercy triumphs over judge, judgment, it's a, it's a glorious truth when viewed with respect to God's mercy triumphing over the judgment that we deserve. That is gloriously true, that His mercy triumphs over judgment we deserve. But I'm convinced that James is saying something far less comforting here. What he's been focusing on throughout this passage is the mercy that we show to others. And here what he's saying is that mercy we show to others triumphs over the judgment that we otherwise deserve. The mercy we show to others triumphs over the judgment we deserve. Why? Because our showing of mercy to others is what demonstrates that we have received mercy from God. It's the very same point that Jesus makes in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, it ends in Matthew 18 at the end of the chapter with the unforgiving servant being left to die in a debtor's prison. And Jesus says this very challenging word. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Jesus is saying that, that forgiveness received from God necessarily becomes forgiveness shown to others. And forgiveness is just one example of James's point. Mercy received from God necessarily becomes mercy shown to others. Mercy begets mercy. 
And James is saying that if you do not see that kind of transformation in your own life, if you don't see mercy received from God becoming mercy shown to others, then you should be questioning whether you've actually received what you've claimed to receive. But Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, that's what James is saying here in James chapter 2, mercy received will have an effect. It's a challenging word. Well, as I wrap up, I, I titled this sermon, uh, The Law of Love. The Law of Love. And that's intentionally meant to be ambiguous. You see, I see a number of ways that we can think of God's moral law as the law of love. I want to end by, by briefly mentioning five. Five ways in which we can think of God's moral law as the law of love. These will be quick. One, God's law is the law of love in the sense that it can be summarized with one word, love. Love God and love others. It is the law of love. Commands us to love. Two, God's law is the law of love in the sense that it is itself a loving gift from God to us. He reveals His law to us because He loves us. And this is how He seeks our good. He seeks our good, thus loving us, by revealing His good designs for our lives. And what he is, James has twice referred to as the law of liberty. It is the law of love because it is a gift of God's love to us. It's part of how He reveals Himself to us and draws us to Himself. It is the law of love, a loving gift. Number three, God's law is the law of love in the sense that obedience to God's law is the means by which we love God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's how you love me. Obedience to the commandments is how we love God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is the law of love. Fourth, and directly related to that, God's law is the law of love in the sense that our obedience to it is motivated by our love for God. It flows out of our love for God. James has twice explicitly drawn our attention to God's promises being for those who love Him. But of course, our love for Him begins with His love for us, right? We love Him because He first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. So this is why the answer to our struggle with lovelessness and mercilessness and impartiality is not simply to try harder. You need to try harder to love people. You need to try harder to, to show mercy. You need to show, try harder to be impartial. No, the answer is to focus on the love and the mercy and the impartiality that you have been shown in Christ. That's the message of that parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. It's fixate on the immensity of the forgiveness and love and mercy and impartiality that you have been shown. That will change you to love others. His love for us animates our love for Him, and that's what leads to our love for others. And fifthly, finally, God's love, I'm sorry, God's law is the law of love in the sense that our telling others about God's law is part of how we love them. Our telling others about God's law is part of how we love them. James, in this letter with 59 commands in the span of 108 verses, is not being unloving by calling out our sin, by exhorting us to moral purity. Now that's part of how he loves us. And this is to be part of how we love others. Earnestly desiring and seeking the good of others. How? By speaking to them of the law of God that leads to freedom, the law of love. Let us pray. 
Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. Father, we pray that as we look into the perfect law of love, that we would be transformed by what we see and moved to love you more and more by faithfully loving those you have made. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.